my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hey, it's Eric, your host of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. For this episode, I am really excited to be speaking with Krilios Clark Jr., a Jamaican author, playwright, MC, performer, and producer. I have to take a break for after all that. <laughs> Krilios is the author of the 2022 anthology Fears, Fantasies, and Freedom, which, quote, explores power, passion, perseverance, love, loss, laughter, magic, mayhem, madness, and what it truly means to find your freedom. I like that. I first connected with Curlios in March 2022 when he interviewed me for Team Racine's Productions YouTube Live. Team Racine is a media and free events in Washington, D.C. area that entertains, informs, educates, and inspires. Although we have spoken only once, this feels like a reunion, so I am very much looking forward to finding out what's going on with Curlios. And without further ado, hey, Curlios, and welcome. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. I am doing fabulously. It is so great to be here and uh, really, really great to see you again and for us to have this sit down. I feel like we've been trying to have this for a while, but I feel like this is the perfect moment. So I feel like it all worked out. (laughs) Well, it's all been for good stuff. I know you've been really busy and really active in your professional life. So congratulations on all your successes. Thank you. And most recently you were nominated for the, was it the movie and music awards? I was, I was, I was nominated for the movie and music awards here in DC. They, you know, honor the best and brightest in film, music, performing arts and all of that in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And uh, the fact that I was, um, that I'm ending my book tour right now and to be recognized in that way, it felt really, really good, you know, just to see that the tour had some impact and people are connecting with the message from um, Fierce Fantasy and freedom what category were you nominated in for best author in the dmv but i will say (laughs) for the actual awards i first thought it was only five of us in the best author and writer category but for the actual award show it was merged with the screenwriting category now to me writing a book and writing a movie are two different things but they throw us all together and um a wonderful husband and wife couple who wrote a movie they actually won the award so congrats to them but i feel like next year if they do it again they should probably keep those who do literature and those who do movies separate okay so was this for the general dc population or was it specifically lgbt or black it was a general dc population i didn't even know about the nomination before everything someone who was nominated sent it to me and was like oh you're nominated and i was like oh wow so um yeah it's a general thing not specifically lgbtq not specifically black it's a huge honor this is your first book isn't it Yes, it is certainly my first book, if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> There's Fantasy's Freedom. 
Yeah, well, since you've shared that with us, can you detail the the anthology? Of course. So Fierce Fantasies and Freedom, it's a 10-story anthology. And the through line is that, you know, all the stories explore facing your fears, fulfilling your fantasies, and finding your freedom. Because for me, when it comes to being free, being yourself, living in your truth, to get there, there's a lot of fear many times. And, you know, upbringing or backgrounds or own anxieties, all of that leads, you know, to these fears that we have as human beings as we move across this planet. But we also have a lot of fantasies, a lot of dreams, a lot of things that we want to do, a lot of things that we want to experience, all the things that would make us happy, all the things that would make us feel magical. For me, one has to overcome those fears to get to be able to live that fantasy. And once you're able to live that fantasy, baby, the freedom is right there. It's unlocked. You are there. And so that's kind of the through line of all the stories. But the stories themselves are like vastly different. You know, when it comes to genre, it spans between thriller, mystery, fantasy, sci-fi, coming of age, romance. It deals with themes like immigration, race, you know, LGBTQ coming of age, friendships, you know, so many different things. And so it's fun. It can get serious, but if you are someone who loves reading, loves going into different adventures and exploring new worlds, this is really for you. It's very Caribbean, very black, very queer, you know, all of that. And thrown in with things that I love that, you know, I've grown up with and things that have inspired me. So, yeah. Well, with it being an anthology, how long did it take you to write it? So I think all the stories in there, the first one I started in maybe late 2016, and then I didn't finish it until 2022. Now, some of the stories, a couple I wrote in a night, like I have the epiphany, I'm up and I just start writing and the sun is rising and I'm still going and then it's done. You know, some of the stories are like that because sometimes an idea hits you, the story hits you, all of that hits you and you have it down pat. A few took much longer. I mean, the final, final story that I wrote in this book, it's not the final story in the book when it comes to the table of contents, but it's the final one I wrote. And that would be the fourth um, story called Keep Your Head Up. I started writing that in 2021, the summer of 2021, and I wasn't finished with it until maybe a month before publishing. Like even when I was doing book covers and everything with publishing and going through that whole process, that story still was not where I had wanted it to be. I know the reason it took me so long was my partner at the time passed away. And this story was inspired by those events, you know, and so... I was working through the protagonist's grief, but I was also working through my own grief. I thought I was like over things and whatever, but writing the story brought up a lot of stuff. And every time I would feel like I was done with it and I would read it, I'm like, is this what I want to say? Is this what I want to do? And so it took me a while to really 
get it to where I wanted it to be. And, you know, it's not just this story about grief. It's it's definitely rooted in that, but it's not about grief. There's so much more that happens there. You know, the story takes place in Vegas. It's also inspired by my first time to Vegas ever. And the protagonist is there with his best friend and cousin, which is close to me because I have a, a cousin who's also like a best friend. We're like the gay ones in the family. And then it takes a big twist in the third act, which I really wanted to bring out. And, you know, I'm always adding a little fantasy to whatever it may be. And so um, it took some time to balance that out for the story. So, yeah, between 2016, 2022 is how long it took to finish everything for Fierce Fantasy and Freedom. With that particular story being so closely connected to your personal life, how do you feel about releasing it to the public? For a while, I didn't know if I even wanted to release this book. It kind of broke me in a way where it wasn't even what occurred in the story. I just started reading the whole thing. I realized I was done with the book. Everything was finished. And then I started becoming a little bit insecure. First of all, these stories are inspired by, you know, my own experiences and the experiences of people around me, but none of them are adaptations of what happened. So it's not like this thing happened to me and then I wrote a story about it and put it in the book. Everything there is fiction, but are inspired by things that I've gone through. But even then, it feels like... uh really huge deal and undertaking to put a piece of yourself out into the world like that. Talking about grief, I'm talking about loss, talking about love. The last night I was writing it, I remember I stayed up all night writing it and the third act takes a really crazy turn. And every time I read that, I remember my state of mind while writing it. Thank you for inviting us into into that. For me as a writer, but more so as a reader, you're reinforcing how if it's not exactly our story, it's my experience is that it still has to come from a place that I can relate to or feel. That's what makes the story more interesting to me as a reader. I think that was one of the things with writing. I wanted to make sure that at all times I was being authentic to what I wanted to say, because if I'm not doing that, then what's even the point of But one of the things when you interviewed me in March of 2022 that I was very aware of right away was your professionalism, your confidence. How do you or how have you worked through some of your fears, say, around being a presenter or any other parts of your professional life? So I went to a wonderful boarding school in Jamaica called Monroe College. It is the last all boys boarding school in the entire Caribbean. And there they taught us to be, this is the phrase, young men of honor, pursuing excellence and leading by example. And I had a fabulous, fabulous vice principal, Mrs. Sonia J. Neal, God rest her soul now. And she really like instilled a lot of that into us. And so at Monroe, there was an insistence on leadership 
you know, taking charge, taking roles. There were so many activities and things to do and a lot of opportunities for people to take leadership roles and stuff like that. So I have felt comfortable on the stage for a long time. I would lead out in assembly. I would lead out in devotions for the house or for the grade or whatever it may be. I was in, you know, different extracurricular activities, speech, drama, choir, like all the things where I'm on the stage all the time. So speaking to people, addressing an audience, being on camera, all of those things, I kind of honed those skills and abilities. And I will say there was a point where that fear did overcome me because me being gay did prove to be challenging while I was in Jamaica. And around that time, I remember there was this um, new thing the kids were doing where if something seemed gay or sus or fishy or off or all the words that they use, they would do this thing in a collective. They would start, they would do like, yee, 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 yo, and it would become like a cacophony. And it just means whatever's happening is a gay thing. That's just what it means. It's just a different way of expressing homophobia. And that would get to me. And so for a while, I didn't have stage fright, but I was wary of going on the stage because of whatever reaction that might be. But uh, that lasted for as long as it lasted. You know, trains and whatever go out of style. Eventually, you know, that wasn't really a thing anymore. And I know that when I decided to come here for college, I was very adamant that I wouldn't let things like that affect me or bring me down or dim my shine in any way because, you know, I am who I am and that's the only person I would ever be. And it was very important for me that when I came to the U.S. that I was going to be myself because boarding school is like its own society. It's its own microcosm of society where we're all coming from different places from all over the country onto this mountaintop together where we are for seven years of our lives. I was there from 12 to 19 and we only went home every three weeks for a weekend or for like Christmas and summer holidays. So like those people are your family. Those are the people you see day in, day out. You sleep with them, you live with them, you eat with them and all of that. And so everything that you expect in a society when it comes to different factions, different beliefs, different ways of life and all of that coalescing and commingling together, it grows you up. That kind of upbringing shapes me in that way. Well, just hearing the activities that you were involved in, uh, either consciously or unconsciously, it sounds like that you just were moving towards your natural gifts in some ways, not going back to the past, but some of that could have been to just uh, seeing your talents and your gifts and being intimidated by them. No, I'm from Jamaica, you know, so Jamaica in itself has its own brand of homophobia and I wouldn't even compare it to homophobia and other places. My boarding school has it, had its own brand as well of homophobia because, mind you, a lot of us there were gay. It's an all-boys boarding school, of course. There were moments of things that people would say or rumors going around or da-da-da-da-da, but it never really affected how we carried ourselves in school or it never really affected our chance for 
I guess, upward mobility in that society or anything like that. You know, that's not true for everyone. There were instances of people being kicked out because of like being caught with another guy or something. The first story in my book, actually, is called Ave Maria. That one takes place at an all-girls boarding school, very much inspired by my own experience at a boarding school. And it does deal with, like, the coming of age when it comes to, you know, a first love, a first crush. But it starts out with a basically a mob going after one girl, Carrie Messing, because um, she was caught in a compromising position with another student. That was something that I experienced at Monroe, not me getting caught and getting thrown out, but my first year there, he uh, was said to have been caught with an older student, like maybe three years older than him in the chapel doing something. And there was this whole mob that came. He had to like hide out at the nurses. Um, the nurse was an ally, so she always protected the case, if anything. He had to like hide out at the nurse for like two days. And then the day when his parents came, it was this huge thing. People were throwing bottles and boxes and cans and everything while they were like removing his suitcases and stuff. And then then someone went and got this random huge lock and put it on the gate um, at the front of the school that no one could remove. So the parents' car was just there and they weren't able to like come out and people like surrounded their car and it was like a whole thing. But imagine seeing that in your first year at boarding school and knowing as well in yourself that you are gay and therefore having this fear above you that any day this could happen to you. And so that stuck with me for years, which is why it inspired the story Ave Maria in this book. And the title Ave Maria is also significant because I also wanted to deal with the subject of religion as it has to do with coming of age as well as being queer because um, I grew up in an Adventist church. Religion was a big part of my growing up and so I kind of wanted to tackle that and explore that in the first uh, story of the book. Just hearing you describe it, I could definitely see that cinematically. It'd be interesting to see that captured on film. I mentioned in the intro about Team Racine Productions. Can you share how you discovered Team Racine or how they discovered you and, and your role or your roles there? Sure. Um, when I was still at Howard University, I went to Black Pride my first year. That was 2016, I believe. Yeah, I went to Black Pride, DC Black Pride the first year. And there was this speed dating event. And I met Racine and Sar, who's the creative director of Team Racine, at that speed dating event. And I saw them there the night we were in the elevator together and we chatted a little bit. I was very enthralled with the presence of Racine, giving a very much mother of all vibe. And I was like, oh my God, no bitch, I live for this. So um, I was already like leaning into that and loving it and everything. And maybe like a month later or so, like I started following them on social media. And then I saw that they were asking for volunteers, you know. And so at the time, I was very interested in connecting with the community here in D.C. in like a real way and being a part of it and really like immersing myself in the D.C. community. The first event I actually volunteered at was at a film festival, the Real Affirmations Film Festival put on by the D.C. Center. And that year they had it at um, HRC. So I volunteered with that and then moving into the the next year I just kept volunteering and everything and then eventually 
the announcer for the Asbury scene show, he stepped down. He was moving out of state and they needed another announcer. So um, as someone with, you know, experience being on the stage, being on the mic, you know, I was asked if I wanted to do that. And um, of course, I said yes. And then I started doing that. And then lo and behold, the pandemic came. So once the pandemic came, we kind of had to refocus you know what we were doing because live events were no longer a thing and so we actually really invested heavily into the online content that we were doing and you know really really coming up with different things for the online content during the pandemic and so we started doing vlogs and panels and interviews and you know so many different things and so through that you know racing and i were the hosts for almost everything that we did. Not even, yeah, not even almost. For all the things that we did, it was racing and myself. Now in 2023, we are happy that we have multiple co-hosts at this point. So, you know, you'll still see me on the channel, of course, all the time, as well as when we're doing Facebook things. But we also do have um, some new co-hosts as well who um, are able to give Racine and myself a little reprieve so that we can still put out as much content, but, you know, give everyone a little bit of variety, you know, if you're tired of seeing my face. (laughs) But, you know, I've just enjoyed everything that I've done with Team Racine. And now that the pandemic is over, we're back to, you know, in-person live events and everything. And it's been a blessing to be able to partner with, for example, the Mayor's Office of LGBTQ Affairs to, like, District of Pride in June or the High Heel Race in October or do things like Silver Pride or, you know, stuff like that. So it's been very great to be, you know, back on the road and doing these live events again. And, you know, World Pride 2025 is coming up. So we are working towards that here in D.C. And, you know, the online panels that you talk about, I was impressed by those, too, because I really like that there's such a diversity in your topics. You could talk about entertainment, but you also talk about politics. When you reached out to me, the production company reached out to me. At first, I was a little intimidated because I was looking at a lot of the local politicians that you'd interviewed. And I was like, wow, these people are quite serious. But I was also impressed by it. Well, you know, with team racing, our goal is to, is edutainment. So we want to entertain, but we also want to educate. And so when we're doing our interviews, we're looking for amazing artists, musicians, authors, you know, community leaders, podcast hosts, you know, politicians, you know, we want to get everybody. And I wouldn't say we focus on LGBTQ issues or topics necessarily but that is a great majority of what we do because you do what you know as well and you want to highlight things like that but we are able to really gather a great eclectic mix of individuals that we're able to include in our panels and to have interviewed and be able to learn something from because you know there's always something to learn from and i will say what's funny to me every time the election time comes around and i know that's um coming up again next year when we do these political interviews watch the republicans ones with me just look at my face because sometimes because they'll be saying some things and i'll just be like okay i've been able to learn 
to take what people are saying, understand that this is their perspective, understand that this is their belief and be able to present it non-judgmentally. That to me is important. I'm hoping we can do something different and new with those political hopefuls in 2024. You are the second person I've interviewed who is an Howard alum, Delegate Ashanti Martinez uh, also went there. Can you share your experience? Yeah, definitely. Listen, I love Howard. As someone who comes from a place that is where homophobia is a part of the culture, for me, I've been very grateful and thankful that homophobia is not really a thing that I experience anymore, like at all in my life. It's just not a thing I run into at all. I, it never happened at Howard. However, there was one time, and it, and it was obviously so significant to me that once again, it showed up in Fierce Fantasies and Freedom. It's called the Caribbean Tree. So at Howard, we have what's called the Caribbean Tree. It's this tree on the yard, and it has like all the different um, Caribbean flags on it, right? And all the Caribbean people hang out there, you know, lunchtime, between classes, whatever it may be. And I remember one time, the only time I was ever homophobia against, it happened there. It just struck me that I was in this foreign place, I was in this foreign country, and at the place and at the spot that's supposed to be my home away from home, I would really get a piece of home in that way, <laughs> you know, and it really struck me in that way. And first of all, the Caribbean tree story is the one that most mirrors what happens in real life of all the stories in the book. I would say that's the only one that isn't, I guess it's mostly fiction, but the moment that happened, I really laid that all out in, um, in the story. And the story ends with the protagonist saying home, it feels just like home. But Howard on a whole was great. I was able to flourish. I was I was in the School of Communications because uh, broadcast journalism plus English minor with a focus on creative writing. I was able to really flourish in all those ways. I was a part of the LGBTQ organization there called Cascade, which is the coalition of activist students celebrating the acceptance of diversity and equality. Whew, a mouthful. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I flourished there. That was my favorite organization to be a part of. Um, I was the vice president in senior year um, as well. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. And I had a strong and beautiful Caribbean friendship as well while I was there, which was important to me because, you know, when I started Howard, I started with the mindset that I would not be friends with other Caribbean people. And the reason I started with that mindset was that I believe that, oh, they're going to be homophobic and that's not the life I'm trying to come here to live. I'm trying to come here and, you know, be able to be my full self in all my ways. And so at first I was a bit hesitant to really like get close to the other Caribbean people. But you know what? You, know, you can't really fight who you're drawn to. And I eventually, you know, had a, a really great Caribbean circle, Jamaican, Trinidadian, Barbadian, Grenadian, you know, together. And I came out very early to the friend group, very, very early. And I remember 
the boys at first didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to do with it. Like, no, when I came out, no one was like homophobic or anything. That was funny to me because I was able to see them grow and transform and come around and ask questions and be curious and be inquisitive and be open and be understanding and all of that. And one of the guys, Matthew, we were texting and he said to me, you know, I'm so glad I met you this year because before I had only had this one thought about what gay people are, who gay people are. You know, I didn't have a gay friend. And through you, it was able, I was able to open my eyes. I was able to actually have a gay friend and to be around you like you're one of my best friends. And it was important for me to have, you know, those experiences for me to grow as an individual. By the end of our um, senior year, you know, I wasn't the only one who was waving a flag, honey. <laughs> so uh, that was very, very important to me that I was able to flourish in my Caribbeanness, I was able to flourish in my queerness, I was able to flourish in my blackness, I was able to flourish in all the things that I am while I was at Howard. I get the sense, you know, that there's a strength there, like a strength that's you standing in your truth, but there's also also a compassion. Because even when you were talking about the Republican politicians, you know, you're you're able to listen be yourself, I could tell you something and you're like, I'll, I'll listen to it and then we'll see what happens after that. So I can see how your experience at Howard, you were able to flourish in being yourself and also encourage others to to do the same, whether they were part of the queer community or not. It was through that that I was able to kind of have the same thing with my family. Coming out to my family was uh, harder than other things. And I always knew it was going to be like a hard thing. As a matter of fact, for like two years, I thought I was out. But if you ask them, I wasn't. And it wasn't until the unfortunate passing of my partner in 2019, where for them, I was fully out. They were not a safe space to run to in that time. For them, they were processing the fact that I was gay. I was in this extended relationship with another man for a long time. So while I was going through the grief of all of that, they were working that out for themselves, you know, and that was my entryway into coming out to the, my entire family. It was definitely a journey because I had to build new relationships with a lot of the individuals in my family because for a lot of them, they had one idea of who I was. I'm a junior, so in my family, everyone calls me JR, right? So the JR that they sent away at 12 to boarding school is who they still thought I was even after graduating and being in college. and Like, that's how they still saw me when I was no longer that person and I was no longer that person for a very, very long time. I had really grown into my own in boarding school. And a lot of that they weren't aware of. There were a lot of things that um, when I was in boarding school, I didn't share with my parents at all because it would have been difficult to share. 
I was looking for accountability from them for many things. I was being accountable about certain things. I was sharing things I had never shared before. Going through those lows are important because then you're able to get to a new space. And um, for me, it was very important that we went through that journey because now we are in a wonderful, beautiful spot, uh, a place that I thought I would not ever be able to be with my parents or you know people in my family. I see even my parents in a different light than I used to, you know, so I appreciate that. You said something, um, rebuilding relationships. I never looked at it that way. Definitely at a certain point realized that it's not just me coming out. It's, it's my family coming out. It's them having to answer questions from people like, oh, why isn't Eric married or why, you know, why hasn't he ever brought a girl home? But I never thought of it in that way that I need to rebuild those relationships with these people. Yeah, I I remember saying this to my mom. I was like, whatever relationship we had before, honestly, was phony because you had a different vision of who I was, you know, and and we were both operating in that way. And for us to be in a different place, we have to dismantle whatever that was and build something new. Um, for me, it was never trying to rekindle what was there before. It was building something new and real and wholesome and holistic that was a benefit to our relationship and a benefit to each of us. You know what I mean? Well, definitely uh, food for thought for me. <laughs> Yeah. To get back to the anthology, one of your stories uh, titled Leave the Door, you've adapted into a play. Was it produced by Robert Garcia's Black Theater? Can you explain why this particular story was important to to put onto the stage? Yes, leave the door open, my baby. Listen, I love leave the door open so much because I love writing stories and I love presenting them and I love people seeing my vision. And um, I met Robert Garcia in 2021. I started in two of his plays, right? And um, I was writing the book at the time. And I said to him, you know, I'm writing these stories and everything. And one of them, I would really love to put on stage. I would love to stage it and everything. This was before the book was even out. But Leave the Door Open was ripe for the picking. And it deals with the breakdown of a marriage between a younger Black Caribbean guy. He's in his mid to late 20s. I don't put an age on it, but mid to late 20s. And an older white guy with money. It explores the breakdown of that relationship. They're going through a rough patch. We see them in therapy, all of that. And the story has a lot of twists and turns. So, uh, you know, entering the story, you're wondering, you know, will they get better? Will they get back together? That, that's the question of leaving the door open. You know, and that's reference a lot. If, if the door is still open to make this relationship work, it becomes a mystery. It becomes like a mystery thriller at a certain point. You know, there's this big five scene um, in the middle of it, there's this um, intruder doing a whole thing. It deals with control, manipulation, 
immigration, race dynamics, you know, but it also deals with friendship. It deals with home. It takes place um, during the holiday season. So, you know, it's always ripe for a good Christmas time story. And uh, then uh, third, I gives you like a really, really good twist. Now, I wouldn't say there are villains that anyone would be a villain in it. However, uh, if you want, the, the, the second lead, um, Charles, could be seen as a villain. I don't think of him that way in the story, but one would upon watching it. And I'll say um, once we started um, rehearsing, because I had a director, we butted heads a bit, you know, because I, I wrote the story, you know, I, I'm the playwright in the situation. I had never directed or anything before, so I definitely wanted someone experienced. And Barry was very experienced. He's been directing stage plays for over 50 years. But, you know, we do come from different perspectives, you know. He's older, he's white, he's Jewish. Oh, and he's also straight. So coming from very different perspectives and putting on this very queer, very black thing we butted heads a lot because there were some things he would like to change or some things he wanted to do this way or whatever and I was like no this is how I envisioned it and all of that but you know what that was also important for me because compromise became a thing that I had to learn and being able to see another's perspective learn from their experience and even the way how um, the play ends and the story ends how it ends now that's not how it had originally ended when I had finished writing the story and thought it was over it wasn't until we started rehearsing and putting the story on stage and everything that we were like, hmm, there's something more that we want to add to this. And so the story that's in the book now would not have been the story if we had not done the play before. We had um, a wonderful turnout that weekend. And uh, I'll never forget the first time hearing my own words coming out of the actor's mouth. It was... There's nothing like that. There's nothing like that. Seeing your stories, hearing your words coming out of other people's mouths and seeing that take form on stage. And so Leave the Door Open has a very, very special place in my heart. Baltimore has a special place in my heart too because that was the city that hosted Leave the Door Open in its premiere. And it's, uh, it's probably one of the most caribbean stories there like i really really lean into a caribbean holiday vibe one of the gifts for me of being outside of the u.s for these last four years is getting to know other black cultures like here in the uk there's you know a lot of caribbean influence here through jamaica through trinidad of course the continent of africa nigeria gambia different countries in africa as a jamaican in the united states how have you seen your influence just of being yourself impact how people perceive black people outside of the US? You know, um, so I've been on this book tour, right? And part of the book tour was me hosting and producing the pre-show for the chocolate-covered Rocky Horror Show during October. I was a part of the cast, but for the pre-show, I kind of themed it around my book. <laughs> and at the end of the night, I sold and signed books, right? And so there was a line, and there was this young man from the Bahamas who came up to me and he said, 
you have inspired me so much tonight. I thought I was coming to be inspired already, you know, seeing an all-black presentation of the Rocky Horror Show, you know, Chocolate Covered. But I got even more inspiration being able to see a fellow Caribbean compatriot who was there in all his queerness. I mean, I was wearing heels on stage. Like, you know, I was giving all of that. And the story I read that night is entitled The Fairy. The Fairy specifically deals with someone growing up in a household that tries to belittle their magic, who they are as an individual. You know, being gay, that's what the fairy really is about. The fairy there um, is a, it's not even a double entendre. It's all, it's triple, quadruple entendres when it comes to that. And him walking up to me and saying that to me and being like, you know, he's lived in the US for a while. And even though he's out to his friends and stuff, there's a lot of things that he wants to do that he has not pushed the button on doing because he still feels like he needs to hide a certain part of himself because of his family, because of being, of being Caribbean, because of his upbringing. And seeing me doing that and writing about it and, uh, you know, making it okay within my writing, within my book, within my performance, really, really touched him that night. And just having that conversation with him this is really why I do this. This is really why I tell the stories that I tell because I want us to feel like we belong. I want us to feel like we are exceptional. I want us to feel like we are normal. I want us to feel like we hurt, we love, you know, all the things that we do, we do them. And just because we're Caribbean, it doesn't change that. Sometimes growing up Caribbean and queer, you feel like it's one or the other, but never both. So I wanted to be able to put those things together and have and let other people know from all over the Black diaspora to know that, you know, they can fully lean into that. They can love their culture, live their culture, represent their culture and not have to hide or push down another aspect of themselves to be a part of that. My writing inspiration is Marlon James. He's a Jamaican writer. He is openly gay. And I remember in 2015 when his book, Seven Killings, won the Man Booker Award. I was gagged. I was like, because first of all, in his book, the dialogue is Jamaican Patois, right? He doesn't like mince words or anything. The dialogue is Jamaican Patois. It's this big, hefty book, and there are queer characters in there. And for a long time, I always thought, you know, when I envisioned myself as a writer, I always thought, you know, to connect with people or to be mainstream or to be whatever, you know, I would have to dial back the Caribbeanness. I would have to dial back the queerness. And seeing someone who was able to not dial back any of that and was able to, you know, write this amazing book which won like the biggest book award one could win in the world was a huge, huge inspiration for me. So hopefully like he inspired me, I can inspire others. Well, no, you have. And what is that expression? You, we can't be what we can't, what we don't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he did that for you. And you did that for, you know, people that saw the performance. I look forward to meeting you. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to get out to Maryland. I have family in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So um, the next time I'm there, definitely I want to you know reach out to you and also to Racine. 
yeah, just this conversation alone, just was like, oh, he seems like he'd be great to spend some time with. I appreciate that. I definitely appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I look forward to the next time you are here, we can do something together. So yeah, I look forward to that. I always end with saying or asking if you have any final thoughts or insights. Of course. Well, first of all, I could not leave without doing a shameless plug because that's what we do with Team Racine. We shamelessly plug. So first of all, what um, I will say, you can follow me at It's Krillius. That is I-T-S-K-R-Y-L-I-O-S, right? At It's Krillius on Instagram and Twitter. Those are the platforms that I use the most. You can also go to my link tree. That's link tree slash It's Krillius as well and there you can keep up with like all the dates of whatever events or stuff that i'm doing you can also buy the book there fierce fantasies and freedom it will send you the you will get the link to amazon and barnes and nobles fierce fantasies and freedom it's only 21.99 on amazon and barnes and nobles even if it's not amazon or barnes and nobles you can find it on your online bookstore i was seeing reviews and stuff from australia so you know you can buy the book anywhere it ships all over the world if you're in dc you can also check out that wonderful queer bookstore called little district books on capitol hill and you can also find fierce fantasies and freedom there now this is an exclusive I am working on a deluxe edition to Fairs, Fantasies, and Freedom that will be coming out within the next two months. So holiday time, New Year's time, get ready for Fairs, Fantasies, and Freedom, the deluxe edition. More fairs, more fantasies. You're getting a few extra news stories. There's also poetry in there from great poet friends and acquaintances that I have that, you know, because, you know, everything that we do is a collaborative community effort. So I also wanted to bring a little bit of that into it, as well as some art. So Fierce Fantasies and Freedom, by the way, if you like the cover, it was um, designed by a filmmaker friend of mine called Olivia Miles. They did the cover. This is the back. What's so wrong with being a fairy? And then the first page has this beautiful illustration of fairies around a fire under the full moon black fairies around a fire under the full moon that was done by the director of the chocolate covered rocky horror show earl melvin and during this winter i'll be working on the audiobook for fierce fantasies and freedom as well because during this tour there's a lot of people who told me that you know they don't really read but they love listening to audiobooks you know they get on the plane they get on the train and they listen to audiobooks so this winter i'll be recording the audiobook well, huge congratulations to all your successes and the ways that you use your life, your journey to inspire and also to be your best self. So thank you so much for uh, coming on to this platform. Of course. This was so fun. This was such a pleasure. And thank you so much for what you're doing with your platform. It is really, really, really amazing to be able to have a platform like this where you can see, you know, other people that look like you, other people with similar experiences like you, other people from varied locations and and spaces and places, you know, being able to share their story, being able to share, you know, what they're giving to the world and what the world has given to them thank you so much for making this platform available for all of us you know as we all you know work together to give everyone a little piece of our magic (laughs) a little piece of our magic i love that (laughs) 
Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.